Welcome to another episode of Criminally Speaking. I'm your host, Michelle Lee. And I'm Ray Wallaby. Today we're going to talk about the TV show on Netflix called Mindhunter. Uh, Ray has been asking me for months and months if I've watched the show yet. And my best friend Siobhan has also told me the show was made for me. And for whatever reason, I was late to the party. But I have now caught up entirely on seasons one and two. So we want to talk about the show. We're going to talk. This is probably going to be a two-part episode. Um, So we're going to talk about the show. We're going to talk about the behavioral sciences unit of the FBI. And the real-life agents that the characters from the show are inspired by. As well as the killers that are featured in the show. Okay, so Mind Hunter is based on reality, but created fictional characters. Um, the Behavioral Sciences Unit was formed with John Douglas and Robert Ressler. Mm-hmm. So the main characters, Holden Ford and Bill Tench, are based on these two people. Um, and if you go back and you watch videos of Robert Ressler and John Douglas, you can definitely see that this is completely real. Um, and it's how the behavioral science unit was created. Okay, so we have Bill Tench, mm-hmm. Robert Ressler, right? Holden Ford, based on John Douglas, right? Okay. So, both of these characters have characteristics that are basically form everything, and you can see, like the Holden Ford character, to me seems like he has he's an arrogant Asperger's kind of person. He's socially awkward. He's he comes across as very young and not with a lot of life experience outside of work. But has ambition out the butt. Yes. Um, The reason I say Asperger's is because if you watch his character, sarcasm falls to the ground. Um, He he doesn't seem to get the joke. Yeah. Um, And he's so focused on business. And then they... And you see him in social events and... He's usually when he comes up and starts talking, everybody else just kind of looks away and wanders off because he's so by the book. Right. He's very clinical. He's an extremely brilliant person, but it's hard for him to just like kick back and be one of the guys and and talk shop. Like, whereas Bill Tench had everybody riveted because he's so like. He told the stories and he was the one that was giving you the, the dirty details. Yep. And. Everybody was laughing and enthralled with all his stories. And and then Holden shows up and just starts talking about the finding his way through the darkness. Right. He's very scientific <laughs> and... Very deep. Clinical. Like I said, I, that's a good word to describe clinical. him. And, and very intense. Yes. So people don't know how to handle clinical and intense. And that actually translated into his personal life in the show as well. Right. So um, if we go to the real people... Robert Ressler, well, he died in 2013. So mm-hmm. he, you said he was, what, 74? I think he was in his 70s. He was he in lived, his 70s. They both started as um, 
military men as yep, well. They were both in the military and they both joined the FBI the same year, which was 1970. It's before I was born. It was not before I was born. <laughs> um, he also, he, Robert Ressler claimed to have coined the term serial killer, which I believe is true, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, I know they threw a bunch of things around, but serial killer is the one that stuck. Yeah, well, what they realized... Sequence killer. Right. Sequence killer was another one. They came up with that whole boatload of terminology, like organized versus disorganized crime scenes, um, you know, modus operandi and signature... They were the ones that realized that serial killers take souvenirs yep. from the crimes. Absolutely. Um, so really, everything we know about serial killers is a result of the work of John Douglas and, and Robert, Robert Ressler, Ressler and the Behavioral Science Unit team. I, if you've seen Silence of the Lambs, uh, it's everything that they talk about is talked about in yep. Mindhunter and all the books yep. and everything like that. So it's... And it, it's a formula. You can see the formula. They use the formula now in all the shows, all the TV shows, anything about serial killers, anything about um, repeat murder, anything like that. You've all, you owe your entertainment as well to Robert Ressler and John Douglas. Um, yeah, they literally wrote the book on profiling. They, they and coined John, all of those. John Douglas actually has another book out called The Killer Across the Table. Mm-hmm. Isn't that new? That's brand new. Yeah. Um, he's on yeah, the... John Douglas is still with us. He's 74 years old now, I believe, and um, is still alive and lives in the state of New York. Um, he was the basis, along with Robert Ressler, for the character of Jodie Foster's boss in, like, what you just said in Jack Silence Crawford. of the Lambs. Yeah, Silence yep. of the Lambs. Played by Scott Glenn. Who's still with us? <laughs> in another great. show, uh, Castle Rock. Oh, I haven't seen that yet, Ugh. but I hear it's good. All right, let's not deviate. Yeah. Um, you finally got me to watch Mindhunter. So. Yeah, you're going to have to watch Castle Rock, too. And I finally got you to watch The Sinner. The Sinner, season two, which, which was is, incredible as well. We're going to do something on that, too, so don't worry. Um, the other thing that um, Wrestler and Douglas were involved in was the creation of Vicap. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was 1982 when they started talking to Price Brooks about forming it. And then it took three years to get it together, and I think they got like a $35,000 grant mm-hmm. to establish it. And so in 1985... VICAP, which stands for Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, was basically a database that they could cross-reference to find similarities in cases, violent crime cases, sexual cases, kidnappings. Um, They looked for the similarities. Nationwide. Nationwide, all over the country. So uh, we were talking... Because before, there was no means for someone in one state law enforcement to... If there was similar murders in Florida as Seattle, Washington, there was no communication between those police departments. They had no idea if these things were connected in this. And like as technology advanced, then the capability to go, oh, something very similar that happened here in, say, Augusta, Maine, mm-hmm. has happened in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Right. So, and what they would do is just cross-reference everything and see how many things either linked to create the similarity or to dismiss it. 
Right. So this was like a huge breakthrough. Huge. Because before, serial killers could essentially roam the country. If If the heat got too hot in one state, they just jumped to another. And there was no way for these departments, these police departments, to piece together that it was one person that was doing all of these crimes. So now we have we have like a, a framework of the main the two main characters in Mindhunter and many, many, many characters in this are based on real people and situations. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some that are like a conglomerate mm-hmm. of people actually um, and we'll get to one of my favorite characters later on mm-hmm. when we go into season two. But um, right, right now, well, let's talk about like what they established. Well, they even established the show, like what the show established. Yeah, like the the establishment of the the behavioral crime unit. Yeah, coining of the term serial killers. Um, the actual uh, profiling. Um, so, nobody profiled before this, so they they took. Details from crimes and created the VICAP database. That's things that happened, things that were tangible that they could put in. And then there was the the, the profiling side of it, which relied more on psychology. Yes. Criminal psychology. So the Bill Tench character, we see what he does. He goes from precinct to precinct that need him, and he is basically teaching beat cops what to look for, and similarities. And so he's basically VICAP for them because he's actually giving them the knowledge on how to do it. Right, he was like a traveling VICAP. Right, he was like, he almost looked like a Bible salesman. Because right. he'd show up with his with his uh, slide projector and yep. all his notes, and then he'd, he would do a presentation. Like, uh, it's basically the slide projector was the... What do you call it? Oh, my God. Like the PowerPoint? Uh, PowerPoint, yes. yeah. Wow, I just got Meanwhile, old. Holden was a hostage negotiator. He was a hostage negotiator. So he was traveling around teaching departments and law enforcement how to deal with hostage situations. So the two of them were kind of like living this parallel path, but they weren't yet hooked up. Um, so they kind of... Um, how did... I don't remember from season one because I binged this. Shepard, the boss. Okay, he told them he wanted he them was to go like, on the road together. Yeah, he said um, Bill was burning out, mm-hmm. and Holden kind of just had a situation where yes, um, the a hostage uh, negotiation went bad. Maybe. Yeah, a little bad, a little little head explosion, bad. But um, so they they're really cool, <laughs> boss Shepard put them together and they went on the road together so Holden was basically going to be Tench's um, heavy lifter heavy lifter heavy lifter and and then they started cross teaching together Mm -hmm. but on the side Holden was interested in the psychology of criminals and what he thought which was actually brilliant was it's a waste for these notorious serial killers okay the trial happens they go to jail and then what they sit and rot and it's he decided that farming their brains not literally but going in there and questioning them about their crimes 
would help the FBI in how to spot similar crimes right. and what things meant. Like the, one of the big things was the, um, that they touched upon, and I think both seasons was revisiting the scene of the crime, mm-hmm. um, and they go deep with Edmund Kemper. So Edmund Kemper was a six foot nine, three hundred and something pound man who was coined the co-ed killer. Mm-hmm. And but it's it stems way deeper than just killing co-eds. All right. He started as like a teenager. He killed his grandparents. He killed his grandmother first. Um, he shot his grandmother with a rifle. Mm-hmm. And then he heard his grandfather driving down the driveway and he ran outside and killed his grandfather. But he called the killing of his grandfather a mercy killing mm-hmm. because he didn't want him to go inside and find his, his dead wife. wife. Yep. Um, and the thing about Kemper is, if you listen to him, you can watch videos on YouTube. You can YouTube Edmund Kemper, and if you if you watch Mindhunter and then you watch these videos, it's identical. So yeah, they, the actor that plays Kemper is phenomenal. Cameron Britton, he he needs like a million awards. This this guy is phenomenal as Edmund Kemper. I actually found myself wishing that he was in more of the show. Yeah, he's like the the Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, Hannibal really Lecter is. has fifteen minutes screen time in Hannibal. I mean, in um, Silence of the Lambs, and this guy, this guy is a Cameron Britton is a scene stealer for sure. He plays Edmund Kemper in the creepiest way, but it's enthralling. Mm-hmm. Um. So they get a ton of information from him. He basically tells them everything. Like he goes into details like like how long it takes to bleed out basically from cutting cutting a throat ear to ear and he said he had to find out what that meant on his own because it they didn't die fast enough unless he cut their throat from ear to ear. But I mean there's some details in his situation it all starts with his mother. And that's one thing that they end up realizing is a common factor in many of these serial killers' backgrounds is a mother that's overbearing or cold. Um, And that's, you know, why they felt that there was a lot of potential in a program like this because they did find so many similarities in these people's backgrounds. Um... Like, for example, the overbearing mother, um, a lot of them were underachievers. They were intelligent, but for whatever reason, some of them it was like a socioeconomic thing. Like, a lot of the killers that they visited just came from poor backgrounds, so they kind of were doomed from the start. But then they also had other factors, like the overbearing mom, for example, that made them similar to other people like Edmund Kemper, who is much more book smart than, say, Monty Rissell, who raped and murdered 12 women. Um, but what they did have in common was the sexism, the misogyny. But Monty Rissell started his whole shindig when he was 14 years old. Right. And got caught when he was 19 years old. Right. And the difference between them and Ed Kemper is Ed Kemper never got caught until he... He gave himself up. Exactly. In Colorado. So he was waiting 
he literally Ed Kemper was waiting to be arrested. Right. And he got tired of waiting yep. to be arrested, so he called them from a payphone and they went and picked him up. Because That's he unbelievable. But he actually had the wherewithal to go, hey, um, I need to get caught. Right. See, and that's the other thing about Ed Kemper. You, when you watch his character, you almost, as creepy as it sounds, you almost like him. Right. He's he's, he's likeable. very like down to earth and articulate. And then all of the sudden, he'll come out with something like, "It was like that day when I stuck my dick in my mom's neck," and you're like, "Whoa!" Yeah, because that comes out of nowhere because you don't expect it. It's like that. One of the things was he he killed his mother with a claw hammer, because basically he said he knew a week before she was murdered he was going to kill her, and what. The reason he gave was because she demeaned him on a regular basis, constantly, in public. Yep. She she mentally emasculated him. He was she made him feel like a worthless piece of crap. And then one day he came home, or she came home, I should say, after a party, and she was reading a book, and she said, I suppose you're just going to want to stay up and talk all night. And then he went and got a claw hammer and killed her, and then he decapitated her like he decapitated his other victims and proceeded to have sex with the wound in her throat. Ugh. So going back to saying that he's likable, when you listen to him speak, it's like you can almost you can almost dismiss the fact that this guy is a multiple murderer because he's, I don't know not dismiss as much as well, forget well yeah well your brain can right. dismiss it because he's he's articulate he's also he's also voiced over 5000 hours of audiobooks and you if you listen to audiobooks you could be listening to a serial killer. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, we can go on. I mean, we could go on and on and on about Ed Kemper. He's, I mean... He's, he's fascinating. But and he, he, he really is, was the, you know, the first one that, that they talked to. And if they had chosen maybe someone like, say, Manson to start out with... It wouldn't be as... It wouldn't be the hook. Right. Um, well, it, I don't even know that the program would have taken off because Manson was so like speaking riddles and well if you've if you've ever seen any of the I know uh, Geraldo Rivera did this thing in in the 80s about Manson mm -hmm. and it's the same I mean again it's the same but it's like Manson is so erratic and Manson speaks quickly and says things that you can't digest because he's already on to the next thing as with Kemper Kemper is very slow mm -hmm. and plodding with the way he speaks very calculated and and he he gets in your head um again Cameron Britton I'm going to say his name a million times this guy is incredible as Edmund Kemper and side note about Cameron Britton I researched him a little bit and discovered that before he was an actor he was a special needs teacher so I love him. I think he's great. He is. He's and amazing. And I'm really happy that he's successful. Um, so I, I don't know if we'll see more of him in season three, but I, I hope we do. I, I honestly feel like this 
show is going to make a lot of these people's careers. Like, they're going to go on to do bigger and better things. Like, Cameron Britton, for sure. And another one I'll mention briefly is Albert Jones. Yes. We're just going to say... Agent Jim Barney. Jim Barney. That man, he's definitely... If if this doesn't catapult him, I don't know what would. He was not in season one. He's in season two. We'll get, in, we'll get into that in the next episode. Mm-hmm. But, again, this guy... Um, all I have to say is facial expressions. Yeah. If you're watching him act, he is doing it all with his face. And it's, it's very a, powerful, emotional, nuanced performances yep. um, in every episode. He, like you said, he could just do, he'll just make this one look and he doesn't have to say a word. I, I don't understand why he's, why he's not being showcased on this show, especially in season two. Once we get to season two, I mean, he's a big part of season two. Really big. A really big part. And it's like, and it, he made it, he made it that much more intense too. He did. I loved him in yeah, the show. His character was perfect. And um, I hope he'll be back too um, going forward because his character is great. The acting is great. Really, everyone in this show, I gotta say, is perfectly cast for their roles. Even, like, we talked earlier about the character of Greg, who doesn't start initially with them, but they they hire this character, Greg. He's Greg Smith. Right. Agent Smith. To help them out in the, the BSU, but they're a little weary of him. They think he's kind of a spy. They think he's there to keep tabs on what they're doing to report back to the higher-ups because this whole unit was created with government grants and they want to make sure that they're not just throwing their money out the window. So they were suspicious of this agent and it turns out, you know, they had some reason to be curious about him. Well, one of the red flags, and they picked up on it immediately, was he was a Roman Catholic and he talked a lot about his religion and it was brought up, it's like... Doing this, doing this type of work does is that going to interfere with your judgment, right? On what's what's religious and what's real, and I mean not to take away anybody's faith. I I would never do that, but you've got to question a lot of things when you're an FBI agent. So having faith, but this guy was to the point where he was so squeaky clean. That if they had to do something that was not by the book, mm-hmm. he was the first one to falter and break. Right. Um, I mean, this the season one's been out for a while. We can do the spoiler, actually. They did an interview with Richard Speck. Mm-hmm. And Holden Ford was very unorthodox in his way of questioning. He All he wanted to do was invoke a response from the person across the table from him. So he used some questionable language. Mm-hmm. Should we use this questionable language? Uh. Okay, I'll use the questionable language. If you have hate mail, send it to Michelle. Oh. But <laughs> he used the C word. I'll say that. Yeah. He used the C word in the interrogation, but the minute he did that, the, he ate ripe C's mm-hmm. was the actual... He took well, out, let's give a little background on Richard Speck. He, he was... He killed the, the student nurses in Chicago. Yes. Um, it was eight women, and he only raped one of them and killed all eight. 
Um, one, one of the nurses did manage to hide under a bed and she survived and was able to tell the story. Um, but, so they were always curious, why did he only rape one of the eight? So in, in this interview, he's trying to elicit the truth. And the details. Right, from this serial killer. And so he brings himself down to their level, in a sense, which does not sit well with Agent Smith or a lot of people at the FBI in general who do not like their agents being equated with a serial killer. At one point, the boss says, I had, I had trouble telling which one of you on the tape was my agent and which one was the killer. Yes. And I don't ever want that to happen again. So, but, they had, you know, this is brand new. This is a brand new science. And they weren't really sure where it was going to go. And they were uncomfortable with it. Um, and they were investigated for it. It was like um, they had to sit before the... Um, what's the... I, I know what it's, you're it's, about. It's, I can't think of the They had to right sit now. in front of like a, a, a two-man committee and tell the reasons why. Because Agent Smith... Will go, i got to tell you why, obviously, why this happened. But Agent Smith... Um, was asked by Holden Ford to redact that section, to take the C-word section out of, of the, the manuscript. Of the tape. Um, the transcript, uh, well, Yeah, sorry. of the transcript. Um, of but the it, interview with Richard Spitt. But the tape still existed. Mm-hmm. So Shepard caught wind of it because Wendy Carr, mm-hmm. the Wendy Carr is another, she's, she's a professor that got pulled into the behavioral science unit to analyze the transcripts and analyze the interviews and put them in a scientific format for the FBI. So they were talking about this tape and they and Holden Ford asked him to redact that one section out of the transcript. So she knew that it was redacted, but she didn't know what it was. So she went and got the tape mm-hmm. and listened to it. So she found out about it and went straight to the top. Right. So, I mean, when when you're thinking about how, um, if you think about the FBI and it's like, it's just like any other job. You got your backstabbers and your, and your snitches. Yeah. So this, this circle of events happened. So the head of their unit or the, F, or the actual... The FBI. The FBI came down and told them, lose the tape. Yep. So he was in on and it. And he was not well. happy about it because he did make a point to say that in his entire career, that was the first time he was ever in this position. Right. And he was not going to ever do this again. But he didn't want it to blow up. He did not want this to be newsworthy. He didn't want anything to happen. And because he so, saw the value. So we're going to go back to Agent Smith, Greg Smith takes it upon himself to anonymously stick this tape in an envelope and send it to this ethics panel. To the ethics panel. Um, so that brings us back to the question. Now you're not now what I, what I started with was okay. was about the actors. You're not supposed to like Agent Smith. You're, right. I mean, you're supposed to think he's too much of a goody-goody. You're supposed to be skeptical of him and wonder what he's doing there. So a lot of people I've noticed online gets a lot of hate, but he's supposed to. But like he's forget. doing his job. He's he's a great actor in that role because you're you're supposed to be suspicious of him. But people forget they don't they can't 
they can't draw the line between reality and fiction. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and that's why they want to get rid of his character. They just don't like the character, and they want to get rid of him. But it's like every you know team of good guys has you to have the him. foil. You need him. Yeah. You need people like him. If it's not him, it's somebody else. Right. Um, just like I don't like Bill Tench's wife. You don't uh, like Bill Tench's no, wife. No, we talked about this before. I'm very upset with Nancy. Yes. And no no offense. <laughs> There's really no offense to um, Stacy Roca. She's Nancy Tench. She's fantastic. She's an amazing actress. She's doing her job. If you're mad at her, then she's doing her job That's right. That's right. And I don't like Nancy Tench. And and it it even gets more in season two. Now, we see, won't. here's the thing about Nancy Tench. I relate to her because I was in that position. I was the mom that was home with two kids while their dad was off. Now, it wasn't for noble intentions, but my kid's dad was traveled across the country and the globe and um, for his job. And so I was in her position a lot and it's extremely exhausting. It's taxing. It's stressful. You don't get a chance to have any kind of life for yourself. But You're always waiting for that person to come back. And, and something really traumatic happens to their, to their family. Yeah. Well, and, and it's also in a transitional period. You're coming out of the 50s and 60s, going into the 70s, where... Um, yeah, the women's rights movement, women, like, having an opportunity. Before, women did not work. They either, like, had a career or they had children. But I will say Bill Tench's character is very understanding, but he has his moments where he's just, like on the golf course and doesn't want to be around anyone. Right. I mean, uh, but there's a lot of times when he gets involved when he can. But his job calls for him to go. Mm-hmm. So... Yes. So it's not like he's purposely screwing no. his family over. But when you're in that position that Nancy Tench is in, where you're the one that's going through this extreme trauma that's happened to their family and to specifically their young son who's adopted. Um, she's really trying to make this family stick together and she needs Bill to be present and he's just not able to be because of his be. job. It's like, and I, I want to stress that part because I watch I watch his character and I, I feel horrible for this guy because he's caught between a rock mm-hmm. and a hard place. He's on the cusp of creating something incredibly monumental yes. that will save people's lives, that will solve crimes. That and will then, change the whole face of crime solving. But then he has his home life that he's so detached from that he doesn't know what to do. And it's to, to watch him struggle with that is like, it's heartbreaking because you can see that he's struggling really hard because he wants to be with his family. Again, in season two, there's more stuff that happens mm-hmm. that you'll go, oh my God. So, but to see him and what he goes through and the way she treats him. Well, it's also going to be hard for him as a man in that position yeah. that he's in to everything he's able to, he's able to sit across from the worst serial killers there is and deal with it. But he cannot deal with what's going on in his own house. It's funny you should say that because, again, in season two, we're going to watch a breakdown happen. Yep. So I'm not going to say anything about that. But you can see his his deterioration mentally because of what's happening in his personal life that he can't control. He has more control over Edmund Kemper or, say, Charles Manson than he does with what's going on in his own household. He has He's totally out of touch. And... 
that you can see the frustration. And he wants to be in touch. He wants to. He, he tries so to hard to connect it. with his wife and with his child. And it's just like banging his head against a wall. It's nothing's getting through because of his job, because he's removed so often from the situation that they just don't get that cohesion that right. you would have when someone's there all the time. Exactly. And it's like they're also all the, there's all the relationships between the men and women, the women and women, the all their relationships are affected by the job. Yes. Every single relationship is affected by the job and and this and job And the job is affected by their relationship. And they are as human beings they are affected by the job. Right. There um there was one comment in the first season between Debbie and Holden Debbie is Holden's girlfriend at the time. Um she said, you've changed. Mm-hmm. You're different. And he says, what does he say? He goes, no. I'm the same person I was. But she said, the job is affecting you. Mm-hmm. It's affecting. Now, here's the thing, too. Um, Tench used to look at Holden and be in awe of him and, and say, I even remember him saying to Wendy at one point, like, this guy's immune from. Yes from the consequences of this job and give me some of that because like I, I am not able to just go home and let this go. I carry this with me, this job. But it's getting But we find out that that's not the truth. Right, that's that Holden truth. is, whether or not you acknowledge it, trauma gets in and uh, it will come out sooner or later. The one thing that bothers me a little bit about the show and I'm, I'm showing my age here because if I was, you know, 17 years old, this would be amazing to me. <laughs> There's too much sex in the first season. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> There's too much sex in it. It's like, it, well, I shouldn't say too much sex, but the sex that's there, they linger on it. And it doesn't need to be lingered on. I want to know more about the people than the actual... Well, that was well, our, more a season one. Yes. Like season two, well, they kind of took about that season all one. out. Right. We're talking about season one. That was the, it, it's not that it bothered me like, oh, this is shameful. It just was like, okay, all right. Here we go. Okay. Yeah, Let's you're an old fart. Wrap it up. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm not 17. I didn't think it was incredibly gratuitous, but maybe No, it was. it's not gratuitous. It's the length of time on screen that was taking away from them interviewing Edmund Kemper. <laughs> but I like, think season 1 was more of like we're just going to give you we want to give you the background on these men's personalities. Yes. As well as the foundation as the, of the and the, the, and the female characters as well. Right. But the one thing that I will say that um translated well into like Holden Ford, you get to see how really, like, I don't want to say innocent, but it's like... Well, in the beginning of season one, I did think he was innocent. He was innocent. He was so, like... But the sex scene, he it even carried over into the sex. Yes. It's like Which he, is why I think that they used the sex scene. It was in. like everything that he was doing was the first time he did it, and he exactly. said he didn't. So, exactly. But then you see, as time goes on in season one, he did change. Yes. Well, what I loved... Was how, again, this is a spoiler, but hey, season one's been out for a while, so you guys should be all set. <laughs> um, he goes to her apartment for the final time, and she's sitting out on the porch, and she has a one glass of wine. Mm-hmm. And she offers him a sip of the wine. He takes a sip, and then that's when they had the conversation about him changing. So after that conversation... He asks her what is going on. 
She goes, you're the FBI agent, profile it. And he did. And he broke it all down. He said, well, when I first got here, you were sitting outside. You didn't welcome me in. You were sitting outside waiting for me. And then you have, you have one glass of yep. wine. You offer me a sip, but usually you would have two glasses of wine. And then um, they go on with other little things. And then he goes, you're breaking up with me. Yep. So he had to profile the, his own breakup. And then at the end of it, he says... I'll be back in a week to get my stuff. There's no need in dragging this out. Right. Goes. And I thought that was poignant. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was intense. And I thought it proved who he was. Yep. And it proved who she was. She couldn't break up with him. She made him break up with himself. Right. Think about that. Yeah, that that was a crazy scene. (laughs) I would be pissed. (laughs) I'd be like, what? Uh, I don't even know, though, if she realized that that's what she was doing. Because I remember her saying, is that what I'm doing? And it was like... Uh, yes, it was. It was almost like her realizing it at the same time well, he was Well, she needed to be it. told. Right. That's what it broke down to. She needed to be told that's what she was doing. Not And this show goes so deep into the human psyche. It goes... Yep. It's, it's not... There's and there's only one gratuitous violent scene in the whole, everything that we've watched in both seasons. There is no reliance on gore. Nope. There's no reliance on violence. Yep. The they don't old, need to. Everything is implied and everything is spoken. Which is typical like Fincher. Yes. If you think about the the end scene of Seven. Yes, but Seven had some. It did, but the thing that was the most compelling was the final scene. Right, you never see it. You never see what was in the box. It's all what's in your mind. And then you never actually really see him pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. You just hear it. Yep. You know what's happening. He points. But yeah, Fincher is Fincher is I I want to do a whole show on Fincher. I love it. I'm a huge Fincher fan. Yeah, Fincher's amazing. Um, Seven. I would do a whole show on Seven, and we can because it is serial killing related. Yep. So we can do this. Um, there's so much I don't think we can cover every single thing in here there's just no way we well would, we've already been talking for like 40 minutes yeah, 40 and we minutes. haven't even really scratched the surface it's so I, we've we've hit Kemper we've talked about Wrestler and Douglas we've talked about the characters Holden Ford and Bill Tench mm-hmm. um Bill Tench's wife, Nancy. Yep. Um, Wendy. We talked about Greg Smith. Yep. We've we've hit some. We pretty much went through the whole cast. Yeah. Well, we didn't do one. we didn't do Jerry Brudos. Oh, that guy. Jerry Brudos. Do. Okay. Let's 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 talk quickly about Jerry Brudos. Let's give him about five minutes. Okay. All right. So. I first heard of Jerry Brudos when Anne Rule, who was rest in peace, Anne. She was like my hero for. Um, for true crime she released a true crime files book every december and i went and bought every single one of those books until she died a few years ago um but she also wrote you know like the stranger beside me which was about when she worked with um ted bundy Mm. and she wrote a lot of other books too small sacrifices um and one of the books she wrote was the lust killer and it was the story of jerry brudos who i'd never thought about since I read that book. So when I'm watching the show, I'm like, who is this guy? He was actually terrifying to me. Creepy. Very creepy. But his, not his creepy laugh. not creepy in a dark way. Creepy in a loud, obnoxious way. He was like, but the things he would say, and it's like you knew this guy had no feelings at all. 
just he and he like got off on making other people uncomfortable right, and freaked out. And you could tell, like, the more he was able to do that, the, the happier it made him. Now that it's funny you said happy, because the guy who plays him is Happy Anderson, and he pulls it off because when you are watching him portray Jerry Brudos, this is not a guy you want to sit across from. No, because he's like he. He emanates filthiness. Yeah, in fact, I, of all of the killers that they interviewed, he was the one that gave me the creepiest vibes. Right, because he he didn't. He was so outwardly creepy. He was not likable. Mm-mm, he was at not. All. You did not accept this person as a real person. And you knew he was like that in real life. Like he's the guy at the bar that everybody like tolerates, but everyone wishes would leave. Right, and I would. He he would be. Uh, he would be the guy that would get me kicked off the jury mm-hmm. for sure because I would be like, just look at him. Right. It's like, and just look at the way very he's acting. Very over the top, like, very gregarious and boisterous and um, just perverted, too. He His his thing he was known for was the shoe fetish killer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we'll talk about that. So what they did to get him to open up, they knew all about his shoe fetish. So Holden is out shoe shopping with Debbie. And then, you know, he's more interested in looking at High heel shoes in the largest size they could possibly get for him. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to buy shoes for Jerry Brudos to get him to talk. And his girlfriend... That was his reward. Yes. So his girlfriend, Debbie, sees him looking at those shoes yeah. and then decides to surprise him wearing lingerie and those shoes. So the moment was kind of blown. Yes. And... But it was amazing the correlation because she she thinks that that's his kink, his, right? Or she's his trying fetish. to relate to him, right? She's trying to she's trying to make the relationship spicier, and all he could think about was the fact that he bought those shoes for a man, for a killer, yeah, for a murderer, and so it translates into a into a really good crossover moment, and and then we go back to the interrogation. Mm-hmm. And Ford, Bill Tench was in there, wasn't he? Yes. yes, he was. All right. So, so they get him to open he's got, up. He's got the the shoebox on the table, but it's covered by a coat His or coat. a blanket or uh, something. Holding Ford's coat. Okay. So he gets pissed off at something that they said, and he decides to get up and walk out. So the guard is unlocking the door, and Holden goes, "Oh, you're forgetting something." Mm-hmm. He takes the coat off. And he sees the shoebox. And he looked, the. I mean, the, the acting. Amazing. Because the look on his face was just like, ugh. It was just like that deviant pleasure and the excitement. The excitement. Because he had not well, seen it was, it was high-heeled shoes. It was quiet excitement. But which you could just un- see it. Like, you could almost see him like lick his lips. You know what I mean? Just like, ugh. So he saunters over to the box, takes the box, opens the box, sees his... Prize they were like inside. size sixteen size or something. 16, some weird. I mean, I don't Wides. know. I don't know why they would be making these shoes for women that size, unless listen, you we're know. all different shapes and sizes. I know, but that was huge. Uh, I got 16. size nine feet for a chick. Well, so. I got a, I got size thirteen for a guy, which isn't small, but it's not the biggest that's out there. But I would be questioning why would you need a size sixteen? Well, well there it, are some men that. You enjoy know, enjoy that. yeah. Yeah, I'm fine with it. Nothing wrong with that. No. When you take it to a place where 
there's killing involved in uh, yeah, your fantasy, then, we've, we've then got, we got a problem. We've got some problems. Um, um, so, so he kind of takes the box and goes and sits at a second table in the room and puts his back to them. And it takes them a minute to realize what's happening. And in that same minute that it takes Tench and Holden to realize what's happening, the audience is realizing it at the same time. He is pleasuring himself With into the, the shoe. Yes. So this is what we're probably going to leave you with with this episode. Yeah, so think about pleasant that. Thought. Think about yeah, that. Tench was absolutely horrified. Yeah. Um, what we're going to do is you'll get another small snippet of an announcement that we're going to make, but we're not making it now because this is a cliffhanger. And you are going to want to probably tune in for what we're going to have an announcement. We just have to make sure that it's really going to happen first. Yeah. And we're excited about it. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I'm super excited about it, too. So, and it correlates with this topic. Right. So, with that, I'll say this. This is Criminally Speaking, and I'm Ray Wallaby. And I am Michelle Lee. Stay safe and... Pay attention to detail. Ah. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs>